three mornings a week, we meet before breakfast for an early morning run. We spend most of our time planning and reflecting on what's happening in our classrooms. This has become our favorite professional development. So we figured, why not share these moments with you? Welcome to Math Before Breakfast. This is episode 50. I'm Tracy Prophet. I'm Ruth Urquiaga. And I'm Jay Prophet. And we are so stoked to um, celebrate episode 50 with an awesome guest. Um, Robert Kaplinski is here with us today, joining us from the West Coast. And um, so many things that we talk about, you know, come from uh, Robert and Open Middle being one of them, but, you know, problem solving and real life, real world things. I mean, just we are just so excited that he's joining us today. I am super excited to have input into my classroom, what I can do next based yeah. on stuff that you have for so many listeners. Yeah. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you both. Awesome. All right. With that being said, we'd love for you to share a little bit about your teaching background and how your experience as a student affected your um, your teaching. Yeah. So I started uh, teaching in 2003. Uh, I really had no business being a teacher. Uh, it was the days of the emergency, emergency credentials in California. I had never taken a student teaching class uh, in my life, uh, done student teaching in a, in a, in a classroom, uh, any sort of education class, nothing. And so when I first started, I really had no idea what I was doing. And I started repeating some of the same patterns that I didn't realize at that time really were not effective for me. Uh, and, and this kind of epiphany dawned on me somewhere uh, into my first year of teaching. I had attended a training and the person had asked me, like, why, when you divide fractions, why do you invert and multiply? And at first I realized, like, does it even matter? Like, I made it this far. Like, obviously, you just need to be able to do it. And then I started kind of getting through the phases of denial when I started to realize, like, what if there is a reason? <laughs> and what if I don't know it? And, like, what does that mean about math in general? Like, could there be other things that I don't actually, that actually have reasons? Because, I mean whether it was subtracting and borrowing a one that wasn't really a one or multiplying yeah. and bringing down a zero and it's not really bringing down a zero and all these things that you kind of knew the tricks for, but you didn't really know, it started crumbling my whole conception of like what math was about and this realization that like I could do math without really understanding what that meant and that I probably had a very shallow understanding. Uh, so that really drives me just in everything I do. It's really to prevent more me's from being created. Like I would never, I mean, somehow I made it, but like, I wish that more students really deeply understood the story of mathematics. Uh, and, and in terms of my own teaching progression, uh, again, started at a charter school in 2003, where I taught math and science for two years. Uh, then I moved to Downey Unified School District, where I taught uh, for math, middle school math for, I think, five years. And then I transitioned into a teacher specialist role where I, I did that for another eight years. Uh, and so, yeah, and now, I mean, that really just drives everything I do. That's awesome. I think a lot of, a lot of, we've talked to a lot of different people in, you know, in the process of doing this and also um, reading Tracy Zager's book, that, that whole idea of who, what you experience as a student really affects who you were, who you start out as a teacher, you know, but you don't have to stay there. Right. And the one thing that stood out to me was that you, figured that out in year one. Yeah. Like in year one, I was still trying to figure out what in the world I was doing, but you well, figured out that you didn't know. Like, well, well, I think you're giving me too much credit here. <laughs> so, so I realized I was not great in year one. 
I think it'll take me the rest of my career to actually learn all the things that I need to know. I mean, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. I, I was very much in survival my first, first three years. Honestly, I would have fired me in my first three years. Someone saw potential <laughs> in me that I did not see in myself. Uh, but yes, I, I knew there was a problem, but I didn't realize how big of a problem it was mm. at that point. Hmm. Well, and I think that's what teaching is about is your willingness to change yeah. and when you know better to do better. Yeah. So with that being said, three years ago, I stumbled upon Open Middle. I We were at a um, NCTM conference and I just remember feeling like, oh my word, there's so much stuff that I could do other than just put some review problems on the board and have students who didn't know how to do it the first time still not know how to do it. And this whole like low floor, high ceiling started, which is what I tried to do in my classroom An open middle Monday was it every Monday. <laughs> there was an open middle problem that the student solved. Um, and then just this past year, I found your depth of knowledge matrix. So I kind of want you to talk me through being a sixth grade math teacher. We are headed into multiplying decimals. I found out today that they don't have any prior knowledge for the most part, like even three times 25 hundredths. Wow. Okay. So where does your depth of knowledge matrix, where does that come? Does that come after we've done all the discovering and they've taught it? I'm just curious where you put it. Is it something you introduce the whole skill with? So let me kind of unpack this um, because I don't know how familiar everyone is with open middle. Right. These I guess one way to kind of conceptualize open middle is that uh, a lot of math problems. So in general, if you think of uh, math, like uh, maybe a video game, right? Uh, Miss Pac-Man, it always begins the same way, right? You always start in the middle and the bottom and it always ends the same way. You maybe get the last dot or you get eaten by a, a ghost. Definitely the latter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if that was the same thing every single time, like why would you play? And, and the reason why you play is because the middle is open, right? The beginning is closed, the ending is closed, but the middle is open and you're really curious about what's going to happen along the way. And the same can be true about math, but it always, it isn't always. So like you might begin with the same problem and there might be one correct way, but oftentimes it's use the process that your teacher gave you in your notes. And so when that middle is closed, uh, I find that really it's just less interesting. And so open middle problems are problems that have open middles where many strategies can be used to solve it. And then that kind of conversation and, and, and the comparison between the strategies makes it really, really interesting. Uh, they, people often describe them as having very low floors because anyone can access into them. Even your most struggling student can often access into it. But they also have very strangely high ceilings in that uh, students who typically look for a lot of challenge will find that they have met their match. And so that's really wonderful. Uh, in general, I would say that they're a great substitute for what we commonly think of as worksheets. And by that, I mean uh, a sheet of paper that has maybe 30 or 40 of the same kinds of problems on it. Maybe it has a riddle at the bottom. <laughs> if you were going to use, I mean, let's be real. I use the hell out of those sheets, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I had all of them, all the coolest riddles, everything. So oh. I'm not at all trying to say like, I've always known this. But when I look back and I kind of reflect on it, I really try to wonder, like, after they could do like three or four of those problems, like what more were they getting out of it? And, and yeah. better yet, what more was I getting out of it? Like, I didn't like go like, oh, now I see they don't know, right? If anything, they're just repeating the same thing over and over mm -hmm. again. 
and it might be the same wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So I would say that open middle's best fit is anywhere you would give people kind of that re repetitive practice. Uh, like say you're going to give them as classwork, maybe as homework. I think you'd find that one problem could greatly substitute a, a whole worksheet. <laughs> now, that being said, if kids can't do a very basic problem, they're probably not ready yet for an open middle problem. So I would say that uh, once they can do like, you know, if they can do five times, if you're teaching uh, multiplying decimals and they can do a basic decimal multiplication problem, after they can do two or three or four of those, you're probably not going to get that much more information from the next 10. Mm -hmm. So I would say at that point, and those are typically referred to as like a depth of knowledge level one, like the most basic kind of routine ones. Open middle problems tend to all be uh, depth of knowledge level two or three. So once you can do that depth of knowledge level one easy problem, then try something else like a DOK two or three problem from open middle. And you'll find lots of just amazing things. You'll find that the kids who you typically think of as struggling, what if they're not struggling because they have low skills, but because they are just checked out from a boring, repetitive mathematics. Like countless teachers have told me like, wow, that kid, I never thought he would do or that or she would do that, but she's so engaged and she's got so many correct answers. And that kid who is done in five seconds, like, and the parents are complaining, why are they in your class and not being skipped ahead? Like you can, <laughs> I can obliterate my sixth grade son with a sixth grade problem. I can obliterate him with a fifth grade problem. And, and the real, I, I can obliterate myself for the fifth grade problem for that matter. <laughs> but the reality is that we can, we can challenge students with grade level mathematics. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, an open middle problem might be a great substitute for all of a homework assignment. Like one problem can replace the whole homework assignment. Uh, it could potentially go on an assessment. Like the reality is this, you, when we ask superficial questions, we get superficial information back about what they know. And many standardized tests have just really superficial questions on it. And so this is what leads to a lot of these false positive moments where we thought the kid knew it, but then later we find out, oh my God, this kid really doesn't get it. So open middle problems also give you a sort of x-ray vision and help you sort of see like what the kids know and don't know. And, and that can be scary sometimes. So if I'm following you, the depth of knowledge one really do have a place in the classroom because you they have to be able to do that before you go to two. Yeah, it's certainly not my intention to say never use traditional problems like you find in a worksheet or classwork. What I am trying to say is I regret doing like one through 60 odd for classwork and one through 60 even for homework. Yeah. <laughs> I really think like after they can do four or five of those, like what the hell is the point? Like move them on to an open middle problem. Uh, they're going to love it. I mean, that's the crazy thing is that kids love these problems and really you're going to get much better information about what they know as well. So I have those students who really love them. And then I have the students that know someone else is going to find the answer. And I just feel like some days, no matter how much I encourage them, there's just nothing on their paper. Have you ever graded them? Have you ever held them accountable? Yeah, it, this is a lot to unpack. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe let, let's 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 do some hypotheticals here. Okay. One question I might begin with, and and I talk about this in my in my book as well, is is this a will issue or is this a skill issue, right? Mm -hmm. um, if it's a skill issue and they generally don't understand the mathematics, then it's worth revisiting whether or not they can do some of those traditional DOK one problems. If they can't do those, that could be part of the problem. All right, let's assume it's not a skill issue, it's a will issue. Uh, guess what? Like, 
it's hard. I mean, we've trained children to know that if you don't get it right the first time, then you're probably not a math person and you probably mm. should just quit. Yeah. Like, I mean, as facetious as it sounds, uh, it's not too far from really the realities we had as a child and uh, as children. And so unteaching that is not going to go away overnight. Uh, so building a classroom culture and a growth mindset is part of it. Um, helping them understand that they, I mean, truly, like consider the difference between say, between, say writing an essay in English and doing a math problem. In English, like no one ever assumes you're going to get your perfect essay on your first draft. You do this like indetermined, you know, undetermined number of rough drafts. And then at some point, I guess we're at a final draft. In <laughs> math, though, it's not seen that way. It's like you get it right or you quit. And so uh, I am a big fan of using the open middle worksheet, which has six attempts on the three attempts on the front side and three more attempts on the back. Uh, and it basically begins with the, the assumption of if everyone is getting a worksheet that has six attempts for one problem, this is probably not your normal problem. And it starts to normalize the idea that not everyone's going to get it right on their first try. And that's normal and accepted. Uh, hmm. And each attempt, it talks about you get two points for the attempt and two points for the explanation. So it's not just like a brute force, guess as many numbers as quickly as possible. It's important to really develop that growth mindset to reflect on what you learned from the previous attempt and how you might adjust your strategy for the next attempt. And I think through that iterative growth, you find that kids actually start to do really well with that. And I've got versions of this open middle worksheet in English and Spanish and French. Cool. So and that's I say on I, but the I mean website. We. And I totally that's on the open middle website in the top right corner. You'll see the, the worksheet. And I said I, but uh, open middle is a, is a team effort. So it's a we. That's totally new to me. That is totally new. And I'm stoked because I have an open middle problem that I didn't get to do today because of our fire drill that I am <laughs> totally going to do tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have seen, I've seen every situation. Like I've seen people use the open middle worksheet and it goes great. I've seen people not use it and it goes great. And I've also seen people who didn't use it and then realize, oh, I need to use it and then have seen that change. Uh, a lot of it also depends on how you set it up. If you begin by using a problem at their grade level and they're even struggling with the concept, it's hard to know is the issue that they're struggling with the mathematics they're learning right now or they're just unfamiliar with how open middle problems work. If you've never seen one, I don't. it's hard to describe it uh, over kind of in just audio, but the basic idea is you're trying to determine which numbers to choose to fill boxes in most cases. And there's some strategy and conceptual understanding that you need to do this in a, in a good way. And that is unfamiliar to them. So I often recommend starting with a problem that's much easier at many grade levels below them, their, their, their level, so they can kind of become accustomed to the process. And then when you once they like it and they understand it, and then you go to a problem at their grade level, you have a better idea whether it's the format or the content. That's the issue. Those are that's, great ideas. Yeah, that's good stuff, Robert. Thank you. Hey, thank you. So I have to say on Twitter, I was seeing lots of people today, like shots of their open middle book that was just arriving <laughs> in their mailbox. That's so exciting. Congratulations. If, you could see, if people could hear my smile right now, <laughs> ear to ear. Well, congratulations. That must be feel really awesome. So. Oh, it's it's so, so crazy and gratifying. Like, I don't know. It, it's really hard to describe. Just I really hope everyone loves it. I really, really hope because I put my heart and soul. It's my, my a personal model is you do the best you can do. And that's the best you could do. And I, I really put my best. Um, I try to write 
the shortest possible book ever because like there are no teachers who are saying like, I wish this book was longer. Yeah. And, and, and I'm hoping it's jam packed with like actionable stuff and, and almost no fluff. So, so if you, if there was a teacher who was like, okay, I'm on the fence about, I should buy this one or the, you know, I have a list like 20 books long on my, on my wish list of books, you know, if, if they were like, well, I can, I think I get a lot of stuff on the website already. What would you convince them is in the book that they can't get on the, on the website? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because the book is really truly for both people who are new to open middle and veterans. Uh, I think that, so in general, the book takes you from the whole process, which from why we need open middle problems and what they look like to how do you pick a problem? Uh, how do you prepare to facilitate the discussion? Uh, how do you, I mean, and, and even your issue about like, how do you get kids, uh, how do you deal with students when they want to give up or they don't want to try? Uh, so how do you facilitate the lesson? What do you do when things don't go as planned? Kind of like what you talked about. I have a section specifically on that. Um, and even how to make new problems. Uh, so that say you want to make a problem that goes on your classwork, your homework, and your assessment. You know, there may not be three problems that you can use, but I'll show you how to kind of tweak problems to make versions that'll, that'll meet your needs. Hmm. Uh, I wrote it conversationally. Uh, so it's sort of like you and I are just talking in, in a staff lounge where it's basically questions and thoughts on those. Uh, and I really think that it could be like a compendium so that you could try it out and then keep coming back to the book as you have more questions in your process of exploring the problems. Awesome. Okay, it's moved to the top of my list. <laughs> I feel that way about um, about the Coral Counting and Counting Collections book, about the, the last thing that you said about like, I'm going to read it once and I'm going to go try it and then I'm going to come back to it and try to get like re learn some more and read some more about what I didn't do right the first time. And I've come back to that one a lot. So go all the way back to the title when Tracy and I didn't know what Coral Counting Yeah, meant. thanks. Thanks, Ruth. <laughs> no, you know, awesome. uh, I, I definitely get that. And the book says grade six through 12, but I guess it's worth kind of mentioning that the book is primarily about strategies on how to use open middle problems. And if you've seen them before, you know that there are problems from kindergarten through yeah. uh, 12th grade. The issue just became in writing the book, you couldn't put enough examples for every single grade level. So at some point I had to make a choice. So the, the strategy, and, and if, if you're an elementary teacher and you're, you're on the fence about whether this would be for you, the strategies are the same. If I was writing a K-5 book, it'd be the exact same book with just different examples. So yeah. something to consider. That's helpful to know. That's great. Okay, so the other part that I have dove into on your website are your real life applications. Um, and I'm heading into multiplying and division of decimals, like I mentioned at the very beginning. So I'm just curious if you have a favorite real world lesson in your library, because I tend to get really distracted, like, oh, well, let me watch <laughs> this one for next week and let me watch this one for the, you know, next semester. So if you can guide me to that point, then my students can benefit from it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of possibilities uh, for lessons. Um, some are better fits. Uh, one that kind of struck me, and I think you were also considering, is this one uh, from Austin Powers about Mini-Me. And uh, the, the heights, so he mentions that Mini-Me, I think, is one-eighth his size. Um, and... The question is like, is he actually one eighth his size? Because he doesn't look like he's one eighth his size. And then you start to get to wonder what the size even mean. Is size a measure of height? Is size a measure of volume? Uh, the heights are listed. You can use it as uh, fractional heights, but you could also use heights in terms of metric system. And then you've got uh, values that are in decimals. And so you've got opportunities to kind of do ratios and, and do 
operations mm -hmm. like multiplication and division with decimals. And so it leads to a really interesting conversation about whether uh, he really is one eighth his size or was that just an exaggeration the movie uses to kind of make a point? So where do I do that? Do I do that after they have some knowledge about multiplying and dividing decimals or do I kind of put it out there and turn it into a conversation in the classroom? Yeah, so th there's a variety of ways of doing it. I'll, I'll share my favorite. Okay. So my favorite way is to use it to introduce a whole unit, right? Now, here's the thing you have to realize. If kids have never learned about multiplying and dividing decimals and you're giving them a problem that involves multiplying and dividing decimals, they should not be able to solve it. So now it's like, well, why would you do it at the beginning? And what I, I like is actually Dan Meyer's headache and aspirin metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. if, if math is the aspirin, how do you create the headache? So by putting it at the very beginning, you set up this context where they're engaged. They want to know the answer and they realize, I mean, they might be saying, oh, crap, but they're like, oh, crap, we don't actually know how to do this. <laughs> and at this point, you've got a context that you can keep coming back to throughout the unit. And the kids will be like, oh, that would be useful for doing this. And now it becomes a great litmus test where you can come back to it and almost bookend it at the very end of the unit or really whenever you can come back to this and now show them that this was something that you wanted to do, did not have the skills to do, and now you can do. And if they can't do it still, then it really gives you kind of a, a good formative assessment that you still need to adjust instruction so they can have the skills necessary. So that's what I like. Um, is it as convenient as saying, here's everything you're, you're going to need to know for this problem and now teaching it to them, uh, using the problem? It's not as convenient as that, right? But Julie Dixon and, and her co-authors talk about this idea of uh, just-in-time scaffolding versus just-in-case scaffolding. I was very much the just-in-case scaffolder. Mm -hmm. Here's everything you must need or you might need. I'm going to teach it to you because that's going to make my whole day much better. But the reality is it was often uh, the aspirin to a headache that they did not have. Uh, it's more work to get to a point where you realize, oh, they don't know this, and now you're going to give them this, uh, this kind of intervention. But it, it's really better for the students because now it goes from instead of just here's some random information that I'll need to know for some abstract time in the future. It's like, oh, this is something I need and I need it right now and I want to know this and now I can actually apply it. That's, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, <clears throat> I work with, with college faculty and they often are going to, will give the students like everything they could possibly need to know for, you know, whatever subject it is. And I, and, and often I will, I will, you know, especially if they're working on a, a, a new course they're trying to put together. And I'll say, you know, if you give them all this stuff, but you're not using it right away, you're showing them that it's, or you're not showing them what they can do with it. Then they think they start to think that it's not important. Hmm. And sometimes they will, you know, and I can understand the, the faculty like, well, all this stuff will help you one day if you're, you know, learning biology. But if you tell them to read this article or like read six articles, but you only ever, look into two or three of them, they think, well, why the heck did I read those other three articles if we're not going to talk about them? Where it may be concepts they'll learn in the next class yeah. or they'll use later. But I oftentimes, and then they, and, and then the faculty complain that, that students aren't reading. And I, you know, I, I try to help them figure out, you know, have them read what they need to for this, not just all the stuff that could be good for them down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, go ahead. I was going to say like, I mean, it's a lot like rope knot tying. Right. Like I think all of us have probably learned like five different knots and we remember like zero of them. Right. <laughs> it's because you learn these knots for some abstract time in the future when it's going to come in handy. But it, 
that time is not now and it just fades away. You just really made a connection with Jay. <laughs> He's like into that. That's awesome. <laughs> so I totally was thinking about technology. Like the pink book that you had to go through when you became a teacher. And this is everything you need to know about oh, Excel and yeah. everything you need to know about PowerPoint. But you forgot it because you didn't use it. Where today, I really needed a screen recorder so I could record what I was doing for a student who's sick. And the IT guy came and he was my aspirin because I had a headache and he yeah. showed me how to do it. That's and guess awesome. what? I'll remember because I was able to do it. Yeah, That's a really and, and good analogy. The, I think the paradigm has changed because when we were coming up, information, I mean, it's honestly hard for me to think about like, how did you look up a movie time or how did you find out the weather? Like the newspaper, getting, right? <laughs> getting the information on demand quickly was just not a thing. It took planning. And so if you need to know Excel 20 years ago, that took some knowledge. Did you go to the library? Did you like buy a book at a bookstore? Like now we're in a different paradigm where you can actually get what you need when you need it. So it really changes how we have to approach teaching. It makes me think I have two funny connect. Well, one funny connection. It makes me think about my mom and we're, we planned, we just went to Disney World and she was like, you need to go to the library and check out this guidebook from about Disney World that was so great in, like, you know, 1989 <laughs> when we went. Or like, that. <laughs> like, no, mom, I'm going to pull up the phone and I'm going to, you know, Google it right now. That's funny. I was so I love this just in time scaffolding. I have to share my example from this week. Um, and that's that's from Julie Dixon and her co-authors, not yeah. from me. Um, I I was thinking about um, I was working with some second graders on rounding, and they apparently had missed in their regular and I was kind of doing remediation. They had missed in their instruction the whole idea if it's right in the middle that you're going to round up. And so we were rounding, you know, we were using a, a meter stick. So it was very visual and they were seeing which 10 it was closer to. And then they would get to the five one and they'd be like, you know, counting. It was five steps to the 30 and it's five steps to the 20. And they're like, oh, it's the same. What do we do? And we that's when I, you know, said, well, mathematicians just decided that we're going to go up. We're going to round up. And so I saved it till they're ready for it. Okay. Um, were you done asking about your I real think world so. problems? Like I'm really ready to jump into Austin Powers. and But I really, I don't know this because pop culture is not my strength, but is Austin Powers fresh enough that sixth graders will know oh no so they won't have like they won't have well, watched I mean, this movie or they might have watched it but yeah I, I think that one thing that is worth untangling is real world and relevant right so there are many things that are real world and and, and what is one person's real world is different from another um perhaps but but relevancy also is another one just that uh some people may or may not be interested in this, but I think that it still provides a context that is accessible for the kids. They can still see that this is some uh, person that is a smaller version of this other person and kind of go from there. So yeah. I, I don't know that they will get as much out of it had they been familiar as if they had watched a movie, but I think it'll still be valuable. That's been my Because as I get older, I find out that more and more stuff I think is cool. They have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I have a, an eighth grade lesson uh, on Miss Pac-Man and, and there are not a whole lot of people like playing Miss Pac-Man these days, but kids can jump right in and understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. For sure. 
Well, um, we, in, in case people don't know, you also started the Observe Me movement. And um, I'll kind of let you, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, just from yours, instead of from my words, why don't you talk a little bit about what that is, and then I'll ask a follow-up question. Yeah, I mean, simply put, like, how did it get, how did we get to a place where the idea of observing another teacher or having someone observe you is like shocking, right? I mean, we live in a profession, like when we were student teachers, or I, I never was, but in theory, <laughs> when you when, were student teachers, when other people, um, so, but as a teacher specialist, I did a lot of observations and maybe you would think that that's like the time when I know stuff and I'm training other people, but damn, I learned so much by observing other people and be like, wow, that's a great idea. And that's yeah. a great idea. Um, and, and sometimes it was like, yeah, I don't ever want to do that either. But, <laughs> but the reality is that sometimes we live on an island, right? Where we go, we just have so much on our plate that we go into our classroom and then we leave and then we go into our classroom and then we leave. And then you really just have no idea what's going on. I use this a, a, analogy from Febreze. The Febreze origin story is actually really interesting. Uh, it was an amazing product, but no one bought it. And the reason that no one bought it was because people's houses smelled the way that they always smelled. So like if your house smells like dirty, wet dog, and, and it always smells like dirty wet dog. You don't realize my house smells bad. It just smells like it always does. <laughs> it's not until you go into someone else's home, you're like, damn, what's up with this house? And then you this realize that good. you don't know how your classroom smells. It might be all roses. And if it's not, though, you just don't know. And so I just think that observe me as a way to really get more perspective about what's going on in other classrooms. And really, uh, another way to look at it is that if you had 10 more sets of eyes in your classroom giving you feedback about everything. Like, what are you curious about? What do you wish you knew? Like, you can't possibly hear every conversation. So if you had more eyes and ears, what would you want to know? And that's really just, it's about empowering teachers to take control of their own professional growth by partnering with their peers who they can learn so much from. So I totally agree. I, I have transitioned into the um, coaching role this year and I have learned so much just by being in people's classrooms. And it's, I am like, man, I wished I had gone in here a year ago and watched her do that. I would have the, the ne very next day or very next hour gone and implemented what I see certain teachers doing. It's just, it's been so strong. I tried the observe me thing. I put a really cool poster outside my door and I was so excited. And then no one took me up on it. And I was bummed about that. Um, and yeah, I can, can I speak to that? Please do. Yes. <laughs> So one thing I've come to, to realize about this and also about other things, but I'll, I'll speak towards this, is that we go in with a, a field of dreams mentality. Like if I post it, they will come. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't. Yes. <laughs> and it almost be like if you put a flyer out on your house saying, I'm having a party on Saturday, expecting people to come. The reality is that you have to be intentional. Um, and, and even if you sent an email to all your staff or put a note in all their boxes, there's something different about like, if everyone gets an invitation, it's different than say, if you go up to like that one teacher that you're close with and say, Hey, you have a lot of experience. I would really love to get your perspective on what I'm doing. Would you mind if we found the time for you to come by? And when you get, I mean, because also some people will question your intentions. Mm -hmm. Are you just like trying to show off how awesome you are? Like, are you trying to make me look bad? Like, Oh, I, I got so much to learn from you. Like no one knows. And we have so much insecurity about ourselves because uh, observation has been typically something that people do to us. Like you're being evaluated to measure your worth. 
So I think that there's a lot to unpack here about why it doesn't happen. Um, I have a, if you're, if you're trying observe me and it's not going what you want, the way you want, if you Google observe me troubleshooting, okay. I've made a list of, uh, of troubleshooting tips that talk about everything from you're not getting useful feedback to your administrators are not down with what you're doing to no one's coming to visit you. Uh, and, and hopefully those ideas will be helpful. Awesome. I'll, I will definitely check that out. So I'm thinking in my own building, even if we don't use this particular format, like how can I, do you have any ideas of how I could facilitate teachers going into, and in, you know, just observing each other, um, maybe me going with them? Um, I don't know. I just, any other ideas you have about what would convince people not to be afraid to open their classroom up and then also this idea of like oh well i can't i'm watching this third grade teacher do something really awesome but i teach kindergarten and i can't you know i can't translate that so any ideas that you have about how i could talk about it with teachers so i would say that in general it's not about the person who's doing the observation benefiting it, that, that's a side effect that's not the goal the real goal is like i mean i think it comes down to that crafting good observe me goals like let me give you three examples okay maybe the worst thing you could do is just put a sign that says observe me and that's <laughs> it no feedback right. i mean i'm not saying that's bad it's better than nothing but at that point if you're the observer you have no idea what to like do you just come in what do you say uh so often or rather I, I i suggest that people write down goals but then consider this next level of goal you could just put student engagement is your goal but like, what does that mean? Like, if you can mentally picture a 1950s classroom with kids politely having their hands folded on their table and looking at the teacher, is that engagement? Is If kids are talking to each other, is that engagement? Um, I think that just putting student engagement doesn't necessarily set you up for getting useful feedback. Mm -hmm. All right, next level. Am I doing a good job with student engagement? I see that a lot and I get why, but what do you expect your feedback is going to be like? No. Like they're going to say yes <laughs> and it's not going to be helpful. So, so what I really think you should do is, is, is frame it in a, in a growth mindset question with like maybe starting with a how or a why, like how can I better engage students or how can I do a better job of student engagement? So this begins right now by saying like, I want feedback on student engagement. I know I can do better. I do want specific tips on how I can do it. And now it sets that up for the conversation with like real authentic feedback and so it, using your third grade teacher teaching while a kindergarten teacher observes, it's not about the kindergarten teacher, but the kindergarten teacher comes with a very different perspective and might have some ideas that could benefit the third grade teacher, hmm. right? Yeah. And so, I mean, and, and I think also what's worth considering is that when you don't put a goal, you end up with observers who are like, I liked your posters. Now that <laughs> might be that might be a beneficial thing, but it's really the, 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 the teacher who's being observed's job to help the observer focus on what's important. Because you could, you could focus on like, did you call an equal number of boys and girls? Or, you know, what kinds of questions were you asking? There's a lot of valid things to focus on. But I think that it's really important for the teacher who is being observed to say what she wants feedback on. Hmm. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of revamp it when I so for me we are required to do student surveys and then based on what our students say we should improve on or where they ranked us low 
they want us to write a goal. Like, what are you going to change in your classroom? So now I see this is my goal. Can I put that goal on my Observe Me poster and say, you know, my student said I don't give clear directions and today I'm explaining a project. Can you come and listen to me explain the project and help me clarify how I could do the directions better? Was that really I mean, what they said? That's really what they said. They said I don't give them directions on projects well enough. Yeah. So I'll give you three ways to frame that goal and then my thoughts on it. I mean, right. like you could put my goal is clear directions, but again, what's clear to the teacher who's observing you might not be clear to the students. Sure. It could be, uh, am I doing a good job with clear directions? Again, that's not going to be helpful. Or how can I make my directions clear? You know, that that's bound to get better stuff. That being said, I'm going to disagree with you. I, unless you're genuinely curious about the feedback from the student, I would really pick feedback you care about. Like, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I care personally myself if about clear directions. So if people, if my students gave me feedback on that, that's not what I want observers to give me feedback on, right? Maybe I can handle it on my own. So I would really pick goals that you genuinely like, oh my God, I've, really wanted to know if I'm doing like, how do I get better at this thing? Now, if there's alignment between clear directions being your thing, use it. But I would pick the three things you really, really, really wish someone could tell you more about. Ooh, that's a good challenge, right? You're gonna have to think about that. <laughs> and, and your goals can change, like, right? When, when you figure, I mean, and clear directions might be something that you can much more easily talk with other teachers about in the staff lounge. Right. As opposed to like getting feedback from an observer on. So, I mean, I would really pick stuff that like the only way you could know if you're doing a good job is if there's another human in the room getting data for you. Okay. So tell me what your top three were. If you were in the classroom, what do you care about? Here are my three goals. So the first one was how can I improve the way I set up a problem to allow students to become engaged without immediately becoming overwhelmed? So I'll say that one more time. How can I improve the way I set up a problem to allow students to become engaged without immediately becoming overwhelmed? Sometimes I felt like I was like dumping everything on you and the kids were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like Dan Meyer actually has a great metaphor for this one, turning up the math dial. You know, start them off. What do you notice? What do you wonder? And kind of get them more curious. I think I was not sure if I was doing a good job with that. Okay. My second question was, how can I improve the questions I ask students to further the problem solving process? So like, I didn't want to be like too telling. I wanted to be more like shepherding them and leading them. Like, how did you solve that? Or why is that true? Or how can, you know, I feel like teachers probably have so many good questions that they could use. And that, that would be a really good thing for teachers to be like, oh, when you said this, I would have said this instead. Mm -hmm. I felt like that'd be valuable. Hmm. Um, the third question was what other opportunities do you see for students getting to be the classroom thought leaders? So I think too often I like the sound of my voice and just want to keep talking. <laughs> and so uh, what is that one article? Uh, Never say anything a kid could say. Yeah. Um, like I aspire to be him when I grew up. Right. So uh, if I can speak less and get kids to be the owners of their own thinking more, uh, that'll be a great, a great option. So uh, those are my goals. And those, and those three goals are on his Observe me troubleshooting post. Oh, okay. Like he's got a picture of the of that of that slide. Cool. All right. Good stuff. Hmm. Okay. So the last thing that I have looked into is your grassroots workshop. Um. 
I actually put my email in there <laughs> to just see if I could get more information. It was really interesting to me. Yeah. So let me let me tell you more about this. I, yeah. Is professional development really meeting our needs right now? And, and I want to kind of think about this because there are some things that we just accept because that's the way it's always been. But then one day we realize like maybe this is not such a good fit. Like maybe recently it was that transition from you had a home phone growing up and no cell phone. Then there was this period where you had both, but you hadn't used your home phone in like two years. And then you probably got rid of the home phone because at some point you're just like, why the hell do I still have this phone? I never use it. <laughs> yep. More recently, I'm in that transition with like satellite and cable. Like I didn't log, didn't watch anything on my TV and direct TV in like a year and a half, probably spent over a thousand dollars in fees. But the idea of like cutting the cable, so to speak, and just streaming only, I, it was hard for me to kind of accept that. <laughs> I think we're in the middle of the same thing with professional development. I think about what's happening. Traditional professional development means that you're first off out of the classroom. So that's never good, right? It's hard to find a sub. It's always damage control when you get back and making sub plans is no fun. Uh, it can be really expensive, right? If you go to like some conference and you have to spend like thousands of dollars between hotel and flights and, and meals and conference registrations. Uh, if you're going to a conference, you're learning maybe 60 to 90 minutes from someone and it might be great, but like how well are you prepared to implement what you heard? And in the worst case scenario, it's more misses and hits. And you feel like, why did it even come? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, maybe it's an in-school PD, but maybe you didn't get to choose who this person is. You maybe even know more than that person. You're wondering, like, like why am I even learning this? Or how am I going to apply it? Right? I, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are like, yes, I yes. get it. <laughs> so we have come to accept that as just the way it is. But why? Like, why does it have to be? So I created grassroots workshops to really rethink how we do professional development. Uh, I want educators to be able to learn from the people that they know, like, and trust. Uh, for example, in math education, we have workshops from people like Sue Looney, who's doing like a, a TK2 workshop. Uh, Pam Harris is doing one for uh, middle school teachers in, in ratios and proportions in sixth and seventh grade. Andrew Siddell is doing one for estimation for third through eighth grade teachers. Uh, I'm doing one for, you know, problem solving and open middle for K-12 teachers. Uh, Chris Lesniak is doing one for debate for, you know, secondary math teachers. And you get to choose who you learn from. You have like six weeks of, of content sped up over 16 weeks of access time. So you can, you don't have to miss a day of school at all. You can hmm. do it, you know, learn a little bit, implement it, come back. It's $297 for a workshop. So it's far cheaper. You can earn university credits. You can get two to four credits uh, to move over the pay scale. I mean, I just really think that this is one day we'll look back and think like, why did we do it? This one size fits all approach which never really works well for students, but somehow that's the way we do it for professional development for teachers. Yeah. Hmm. You hit on so many of the things that we talk about, like right? what's wrong with professional development. And and now as the person sometimes trying to provide that in my one little building, like, hmm. Yeah. So I do have to, my school this year for the first time has mm -hmm. done personal professional development. So it is completely up to me as an educator to get five hours of professional development. And I can read a book and mm -hmm. talk to someone about it. I could do one of these grassroots workshops with someone or by myself. It's just kind of like you choose what uh, what is good for you. And it really feels like the whole shadow con thing that you talked about is they have empowered me to choose my own professional development and do a good job instead of 
having the power to say you are going to show up during the summer and you're going to sit for four hours because we're going to bring this person in and we're going to ask this person to meet the needs of the kindergarten through 12th grade teachers in our building. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I, I don't think anyone's really shocked to hear what you're saying, right? Like we've just come to accept this fact that one size fits all is is the way professional development is. And I, I really think that we will appreciate this customizability and wonder how did we ever not have it this way? Yeah. I think it's just a matter of time that people get acclimated for that. I like the idea that it's extended too. So it's a topic that you want to, that you are interested in. And then over that you said 16 weeks, you'd have access to it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I would say it's almost like a two day in-person workshop being spread out over like six weeks of content. So you really get this deep understanding of how to implement it really kind of like from just, I mean, really a, a conference session is more like, here's what it is and here's why you would want to do it with no real time for how the hell do you actually do it? Mm-hmm. And these online workshops from grassroots workshops really go deep into how do you actually make this happen? And you've got the support because the instructor is actually responding to your questions. Are you, do they start a specific day and everyone starts at the same time or? Yeah, we're, we're following like a university model. So we have a fall, spring and summer semester. And the benefit of that is that you kind of create cohorts where everyone is buzzing about the same content at the same time. And so you create a community where everyone's talking about these lessons. And then the next week, everyone's talking about those lessons uh, versus you're just kind of on an island by yourself because here's the reality. You know, you're mentioning that you might want to take this one topic. Well, you might be the only person at your school interested in that one workshop. But when there's, you know, a person in every state, well, now you've got this community of people that can reflect on stuff, right? Like you might want to learn from, from consultant A, but if you're the only person, what are the odds that first consultant A is going to come anywhere near where you're at or B, mm-hmm. your school is going to pay for just consultant A to come just for you. So, yeah. you know, you can have one teacher or, or a small group pilot with that, that, that person. And then, you know, if you want to bring them in or her in, that's fine. But uh, I think that this really just gives you that opportunity to learn more about uh, a, a topic and go much deeper than you can uh, in person. So one more question. If I am in the, I don't know, spring semester of this workshop, do I, is it like, um, Google where I can Google Hangouts where I can see the people or is it just email? Yeah. So, so people call that like asynchronous or synchronous. Is it live? Like I have to be in front of the computer at a specific time uh, or is it asynchronous where I can do it whenever I want? The reality is that when we're thinking about this, it's just unrealistic to expect teachers from all over the world to be in front of their computer at the same specific time. That's just right. as much as that might be nice. It's just not realistic. Mm-hmm. So uh, all the lessons are pre-recorded so that you have the flexibility of doing like 20 minutes uh, on the on the subway or five minutes while you're waiting for the doctor <laughs> appointment. And you can do it in bite-sized chunks. So the videos are, are tend to be very short. Uh, and so you have that benefit of just really having professional development work around your schedule instead of the other way around. Hmm. Cool. Well, we will definitely put the link to that on our show notes. We'll put the link to all the things you've talked about. Right. We'll put that in our show notes. Awesome. So is there anything that we haven't asked you about that you wished we had asked you about? No, you, you guys are very thorough. I mean, I appreciate you you mentioning the open middle book, uh, open middle math problems that unlock student thinking. It's available now. And I, I really, I mean, I think you, you, you alluded to it, but I, I truly, and I'm super biased here, but I, <laughs> I, I truly believe 
that open middle problems are the the biggest thing for bucks that math educators can have. I think that it, it get, it's they're really really easy to kind of incorporate and test out and give like a disproportionate benefit. So I hope teachers try it. And if you find that you want more support, then check out the book. But there's tons of free problems on open middle. And I would just start peeking at those now. Awesome. That is good stuff. So we we usually end our episode with takeaways. So we'll go first and share our takeaway. There's so many. but um, <laughs> And then if you want to share a takeaway, you're welcome to. We, we won't put you on the spot because you've shared the whole time. So who's ready over here? So... I'm going to take it from Julie Dixon (laughs) and the whole just-in-time scaffolding instead of just-in-case. Really thinking about as I head into multiplying and dividing decimals. And I will – I did do that today. Like I didn't tell them the algorithm, but we did um, three groups of 25. And then I did – three groups of 25 hundredths and three groups of two and a half tenths. And we were able to see that. And then I was like, so what is three tenths of a group of 25? And then they went, ah, right. (laughs) And so I was like, do you expect it to be smaller? Do you expect it to be bigger? And then I said, hmm, I guess we'll have to come back to this tomorrow. (laughs) Left them hanging. Right. Nice. Do you have something, Jay, you want to share? Kind of. You were talking about the just in time scaffolding and i'm i was thinking about it and i don't know whose example was the the aspirin right dan meyer that we used earlier and um that kind of was interesting for me because one of the things i do is i offer you know i I work on and and run professional development workshops at the university where i work and sometimes i've got these great ideas and so I'll, you know, put something together, I'll offer a workshop and, you know, three people think it's a good idea to come, you know, <laughs> to come to it. And, and I've kind of started, I didn't have a, I didn't have a good, you know, you know, the aspirin for my headache kind of thing. I didn't have a good, you know, way to explain it, but I get so much better uh, results when somebody, you know, comes to me and says, Hey Jay, I'm having trouble with this or you know, I wish I knew more about this. Can you, you know, is there somebody on campus that we can work with? Do you know somebody who knows about this? And I'll respond to, you know, a faculty member's need. And all of a sudden, 25 people all hmm. had that same, you know, oh, yeah, I've wondered hmm. about that, too. Or, you know, yeah, I've always, you know, and I've always never been sure about that. And so I have, this is going to help me reach out more to, to people to figure out what it is you know, that they are struggling with or, you know, things that are popping up in in their, you know, in their areas. And it could be cross-curricular. It could be just their, their field and um, try to work on those specific things and maybe get groups of people and and keep working with them that are, that are struggling with it, with, with different, with different things. Awesome. So I think my, I probably have two takeaways. One is um, I'm going to check out this, six attempts um worksheet with the or or yeah, recording the sheet. Worksheet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, same. Like I'm, I'm I have some teachers that I know would be like, oh, I want to you know, <laughs> I've I've shared open middle with them and I think this will really add to their teaching growth mindset with it. I can't wait to share that. Check that out and then share that with them. And then I I'm gonna go back and think again about the whole observe me thing and and how I'm gonna talk to teachers about that and getting feedback and maybe start with a couple of teachers um, to try again there. Cause I, 
Yeah, I, I think I just that whole build it and they will come or, you know, like <laughs> I, I that did, obviously didn't work. So I'm gonna try again with that. So do you want to share a takeaway? No pressure. Yeah, actually, I, I would actually I was going to say observe me too, in the sense that it's interesting to try to unpack the trauma of observations. Like, how did we get like the idea that a teacher should want to observe another teacher being like traumatic is so weird. Like it should be the most everyday thing ever. And so try, try to really just if you start to unpack, how do we get to a place where that is a traumatic thing? I think it'll really be worth exploring and just hearing you talk through this and just the whole process of people not wanting to be in other classes and questioning motives. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just something I'm still processing. Yeah, there's 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 a lot in there's just so much there in a building to unpack and personalities play into it, too. You know, not just the, sure. the system, but, you know, an individual personality. So I'm going to I'm going to think I'm gonna have to think we'll talk about that on a run soon. I'm a sure. Run. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for joining us. This has been a huge treat. Yeah. Okay, so this is really cheesy, but I need a selfie because when we do Open Middle, and I told my students today that I was going to meet the author of Open Middle, so I need proof that we did this. How are we going to do that, Ruth? I'm going to just turn it right here, and you put your head right beside the monitor. Okay, come on. Okay, hold on. See, I can see if I can move. Wait, this is like right in his face. Hold on, I'm going this way. Oh, look, he's right in between. Okay, I got this. So now we just need you. Oh my word, this is so funny. <laughs> okay, this is awesome. This makes for okay, great podcast, ladies. Picture? Right? <laughs> One, two. Oh, you got it right. This, the microphone thing is standing no. right in his face. Yeah, his face is covered with the microphone. Well, he was in between it. He moved his head. Oh. Move over towards your thumb. Okay, ready? One, two, three. <laughs> okay. Oh man, this is too funny. Oh, that's awesome. It's totally going on my board. Look, I met him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you very much.